Hi. Hello. I'm Alexis Hyde. I'm Erica Wong. And this is Hyde or Practice. a minute. It's 2023. So what are we going to do for you? We are going to get the most exciting people for you like we always will, but even like better. I think you're going to see it's you should just get really excited. Maybe you should sit down. Maybe you should put on your seatbelt. We've got Gabriel Colongo, director and founder of Jupiter Contemporary down in Miami, gracing us with his presence. I can't even tell y'all we already just like got into it in like the four minutes in our pre-conversation. So I am so like genuinely excited about where this conversation is going to go. Gabriel, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you guys for having me. Pretty excited to be here. It's amazing. So do you mind for our <laughs> listeners who um, aren't on your emailing list yet, which they should be guys, I'm going to put all of that link stuff in the blurby. Uh, can you give us a little bit of, of who are you? What are you doing? Where are you doing it? Miami. Oh my God. <laughs> Uh, thanks for the intro, like short intro. My name is Gabriel Kilongo, like you said. I uh, was born in the Congo, and then at age nine, my family and I had to flee a series of wars from the Congo, and we moved to Israel. The country offered us shelter, and I was pretty much raised there until I was 19, and uh, I finished high school and was kind of like, you know, thinking about the next thing to do, and through my younger sister, I met this incredible man who pretty much transformed my life. His name is Marty Peretz. He used to be uh, the owner of the New Republic for a very long time. And he was also a teacher at Harvard. Uh, and he insisted to meet me kind of, and uh, he thought that I should move my life to America, you know, specifically in New York, and um, get my college education there. And so he helped me get here, introduced me to... Bard and the president of Bard, and I got to meet them. And um, at first, I was pretty hesitant about it, but eventually, I, you know, listened and filed my application, and I got in and uh, received a full scholarship to come and study art, uh, art history specifically at Bard. I, uh, I was uh, very interested in architecture at the time. You know, I've always had this interest in art and always aspired to be an artist. Uh, but, you know, I come from a very traditional Congolese family and being an artist was a big no from both my parents. It was just not an option for me. And I wasn't really aware or familiar with the art industry or how I could make a living, you know, by being involved in art, whether as an artist or like, you know, being a gallerist was not such a foreign concept to me. I didn't even know that that was a possibility. You know, I would always go to museums. So, you know, curating was something that I was thinking about, but didn't fully know how to go about it. But anyways, you know, through my experience at Bard, I met a lot of people in the art world that kind of started introducing me to, you know, um, galleries and other artists and other dealers. And I slowly started to learn. And, you know, through, you know, a very kind of like unusual path, I got to where I am right now in Miami. That's amazing. Yeah. I think it's so exciting. I love that around the world, if getting into art is frowned upon by most people who have families <laughs> who aren't into art. <laughs> exactly. It's just, that's a nice constant that we all have in common. But I love that. I love that you're in 
Miami. And I, we mentioned it a little bit in our little pre-conversation um, about like how it seems like there's just like some hot, I mean, obviously everybody knows that Miami's hot. Everything's hot in Miami. I'm hotter in Miami. <laughs> it's just facts. But like, and obviously we all know about Basel and stuff, but like year round, I mean, what, what drew you to go down to Miami and not stay in New York or you know, like I said, I was I was born in a very tropical, you know, place. Congo is on the equator, and I was in one of the cities that is actually sitting on the equator in Bukavu. So, you know, I'm used to like kind of like hot, humid weather. And, you know, after that, I moved to Israel, which is pretty much, for the most part, you know, kind of a desert. Um, and so I'm very used to like these kind of, you know, uh, high temperature, humid kind of um, region and you know I you know I moved here to New York um, after finishing school in Israel and for the first time I saw snow when I was at Bard and it was kind of really exciting at first but after a couple of months was not so fun so I was actually chatting with a friend of mine and she actually told me to consider you know fleeing to Miami during the winter um, and I gave it a shot and I tried it and I kind of fell in love with the city because it felt very familiar to me. Um, it reminded me a lot of Israel specifically, you know, you have nature around you, all the palm trees um, and whatnot, you know, there, you know, it's a, the beach culture here is pretty uh, prominent, which also is the case in Tel Aviv where I grew up, specifically Jaffa, you know, I was used to literally waking up every day and walking 10 minutes, you know, to the beach. Um, and plus, you know, just like the culture also felt very similar. I mean, you do have a lot of Israelis in Miami, actually, and a lot of Jew a very strong Jewish community. And I really like the diversity of Miami, which is so interesting, you know, because you could say New York, L.A., all these other cities are kind of diverse as well. But I think they're diverse in a way that is problematic because it's gated kind of. I mean, I've never seen you know, on the island of Manhattan, um, unless you're like sort of like in the Bronx or in Harlem or whatever, you know, a restaurant, for instance, or a business that's owned by an immigrant from Haiti or an immigrant from Venezuela, an immigrant from Cuba, which you literally see here on on Miami Beach. Um, and so that was kind of inciting to me because I saw how entrepreneurial the people who are moving to Miami were, and I really like how it, it kind of felt that, you know, like the American dream was kind of still alive here in a weird way, where like the opportunities were, were like, you know, the doors were kind of wide open for you to experiment um, in different areas. And yeah, I think that's how it happened. I love that. That, that was like what kind of drew me to the city. I felt like really comfortable. Yeah. Low key as somebody from Texas, New York was never an option for me. It's too cold. <laughs> so yeah. Los Angeles it was. I get it. Um, I love that though. I think that I really hear what you're saying too about like how diverse Miami is, and it is in a different way than like LA or New York, where it's very compartmentalized, like our diversity in a lot of like ways. So here's like the most the question I have like the most is that Miami is such like a white hot spotlight of a city for art world stuff in like, like two weeks in December. And then it's like a regular city for all. I mean, it's always like a hot spot for like everybody coming in, but like, there's just this spotlight of like art world, people coming in, everybody's coming in for like two weeks. And then it's kind of 
not as much going on. How do you balance that, that like, you know, that kind of like a wave of focus and then just going back to like your regular life? <laughs> you know, so it's been almost a year since I moved here. And for the first time I got to kind of experiment, oh, that's sorry, experience, you know, being in Miami full time for an entire year. And I did have a similar impression before I spent that much time here. But during, I think Miami changed quite a bit during um, the pandemic. And that's kind of when I started thinking about opening a gallery here because, you know, I was stationed down here to run the pop-up for Mitchell Ness and Nash in the design district. And, you know, that was from November to February 2021 to 2022 and then from 2022, from 2020 to 2021 and then from 2021 to 2022. Uh, so you kind of got a taste of Miami pre and after Basel. And something that I think people might forget is that you do have a strong pool of collectors who are based here full time and are always in Miami. In addition to collectors, you have other different types of art enthusiasts who do live here. You know, there are a lot of young artists, photographers, a lot of aspiring curators, aspiring dealers who are down here, advisors and whatnot. And they are very involved and active all year long, you know. Um, And I think that kind of increased also, you know, after the pandemic, because there was a good amount of collectors who also moved from different corners of the country. Um, You know, there there was like this interesting migration, you know, I think primarily from New York, but, you know, the cold cities, New York, Chicago, you know, even Canada, I have to say, you know, I was meeting a lot of clients who were sort of escaping the cold from Canada and moving to Florida, you know, but even like people from LA were moving to Miami. There were a good number of people from London who moved here. So, you know, that really changed the dynamics down here. And you do have these snowbirds who come and spend time in Miami after Basel. So it's actually pretty active from December, January kind of cools down a little bit for the first half of it. And then the second half is uh, pretty active again all through the summer. And then there's kind of a slump in the summer, but there is still there's still um, a significant amount of activity going on. So I have to say, I mean, I think that yeah, it's a it's a, it's a misconception, I have to admit. I love that. <laughs> that's great i mean it's like any city new york is yeah. not the normal new york when you have freeze armory right. or whatever obviously you have an influx of people coming from different corners of the world but you do still have a very active art market you know when these first are not happening and miami does have it i guess you know you have to be here to kind of experience it you know yeah that's awesome because it's a little bit more quieter than other cities are you know not every sort of collector is super out in the public eye and, you know, same for the galleries that are based down here, mm-hmm. but you still have a lot of action that's happening kind of so. under the table, so to speak, you know. <laughs> I'm, I'm wondering, so you studied art history and then you went into like a, a long path later than you, you started your own gallery. I operate from the lens of somebody who knows how difficult it is to get into the art world from being trained as an artist. Do you think that uh, having a gallery 
and studying art history and then like watching your friends who wanted to be artists like that you may approach how you structure your gallery slightly differently? Um, I, I think, you know, the education kind of informed different aspects of how we operate, but I don't think, you know, uh, that my art history background is, you know, I don't think 100% of how the gallery is operating is kind of based on the education. I had sort of a string of, you know, real life experiences since I was in college until when I opened the gallery that I think I'm referring to, referring to, you know, to sort of like establish a structure for the gallery, you know, before getting into art, I was kind of aspiring to be an architect because, you know, I was told, no, it can't be an artist. So I was like, okay, you no, know, maybe I should find um, a profession that would kind of allow me to kind of still be creative, but, you know, something that would be seen as like a respectable, uh, acceptable vocation. And uh, architecture was the first thing I could think of. So when I was in college, I got to work for Frank Gehry, uh, Rafael Vignoli, and Moshe Safdi. Um, and then after college, I kind of started out working on different architectural projects in New York at uh, Skidmore Owens in Maryland, then uh, this small firm, Ethel Coblin, we were doing, um, uh, renovating a, a few uh, uh, apartments in the city. Uh, but then I got this uh, opportunity to work at the Met. We did a show on the Congo there actually. Um, and that kind of opened my eyes to this aspect of the art world that I was not really aware of, that even my education did not really expose me to um, on a professional level, so to speak. Uh, so. I think what really helped me get here was that I was exposed to all these incredibly talented people that I worked for. Um, and I think, you know, what I got from it, you know, I, I just absorbed as much as I could from them. And I'm only realizing now how helpful or how constructive those experiences were in terms of sort of getting me prepared for the experience of owning a gallery. And obviously I work for, um, you know, a few dealers and then I worked for Michelle and Messinage for almost three years. And that was when I kind of like, you know, it was really introduced to like the different aspects of what it means, you know, to put together a show. How do you put together an art for presentation? You know, when I was sent down here to run a pop-up that was really kind of running a gallery from A to Z, so to speak, you know, because then you kind of, are involved in the logistics of shipping art from you know one place to another, uh, curating uh, an exhibition, communicating with artists about um, you know an exhibition, sending out inventory, uh, placement, doing sales and whatnot. So yeah, I think I learned. I think from school, what I got is to sort of how to think critically about art, but you know how to the day to day of how to like run a business. I really learned from working. I think that's something we really hear across the board. I mean, like there's just, and I think also even like, especially, I don't know, I don't know how it was at Bard, but I think about my art history education, like there just wasn't a lot of anything contemporary past like the YBAs and like, there's just like so much of like the world that we're living in, in terms of like art world, contemporary artists and like who's doing what and like galleries that are relevant, even new museums that are coming out, like just these are like weren't, mm -hmm. 
I just feel like schools can't, can't, I mean, I can barely keep up. So of course, like an institution can't keep up to like update the curriculum all the time. But I really love to hear about like learning on the go. Cause I think that so many people get out of school or they're starting their career and they're like, there's this whole breadth of knowledge that I don't have and nobody taught me. And I think that again, let's just like bust down some misconceptions. I don't think anyone's really taught. I think that we all are just learning on the job and like if we're lucky we get a job where like we can learn and like somebody is supportive and they're not crazy or doing something <laughs> and that might just be like my cv but anyway but the you know <laughs> and like it's just and then you can kind of like learn how to like run a business and like is this the part of the business that you're interested in or not um and it's funny to come from like because i i was at richard meyer for a few years that like you know, it's kind of funny to like be in these kind of tangential art spaces because like, obviously like we're building spaces, but we're also working with galleries and you're doing, you know, you, you're working with like clients in the same kind of way. And you have to kind of like deal with like, you know, proposals in a similar way. And you are like in like an aesthetic line. So it's kind of nice, but it's, it's so much more businessy than a gallery. And I feel like that's a nice base of like learning how to, again, like, like run a business as opposed to just, so much of like, you know, a lot of galleries, I think we've talked about this before on the podcast where, you know, someone just kind of like starts selling art and then they kind of go to a space and like, they kind of don't know what they're doing. And it's just kind of like month to month, like, you know, right. seat of their pants, but it sounds like you've got a really good base, which is great because Miami is lucky to have you. <laughs> Thank you. Although I have to say about bars education in art history, to be fair, I think they have an excellent art history program. And in addition to that, I think the graduate program at CCS is one of the best in the world. Um, it does stop, uh, you know, they have this philosophy that I think is actually really fascinating that if you want to study art history, you should kind of learn everything from like, you know, prehistory all the way up to the 80s, kind of stopping with minimalism. Um, and I think that's kind of the right way to go about it. But you're right, you know, I think contemporary, when it gets like sort of like past the eighties, it's kind of challenging to come up with a curriculum at school to be teaching because, you know, how many, I, I, I think, you know, it's like kind of too soon or too close to the times that we're living. Yeah. Um, so I kind of understand where they're coming from, but you know, I think that's changing a little bit because I did notice that uh, CCS for instance is really, um, making a push to kind of change sort of that conception. And they are actually teaching, you know, uh, about, you know, more recent aspect of the history of the exhibition. Um, so I, I have to say, yes, like, you know, getting an art history degree is not everything. I mean, you do leave school, th- you know, having this kind of feeling that you know everything about art and anything there is to- Yes, you know, it's theoretically about history, but, you know, like, you know, how do you run a business with that knowledge? You know, you need to kind of, like, get this other experience, like you were saying, to yeah. be able to do things right, you know? Because then, you know, operating a business is not really like, you know, writing an essay. You know, you have to, like, there are all these different nuances yeah. that you have to, like, be aware of. And the writing the essay part is really good, because I feel like that could lead yeah. into, like, 
sales, basically, because you're talking about the work and like, <laughs> yeah. what's the influence? And oh, I saw this influence. And yes, that does remind me of that same Rauschenberg that you're talking about. And this is, you know, right. oh, yes, Italian Pavera. I agree. This, I see those influences. <laughs> and people like to talk about that. And I think that really helps with like the real soft touch aspect. But yeah, it's, and I do think that there's, I know who we were talking to Debbie Wish on uh, that episode. She was talking about how, because she works with a university in New York, but how they're trying to get more business of art classes into the program too, just so people can, you know, kind of have a little bit of a base. That helps people make good decisions, I think. I think what's very mm-hmm. interesting is that when you're in academia or you're in the institution, it's a, it's a very it's a gap basically students look to their teachers to think that I can go to you to understand industry knowledge or have industry experience or industry contact and obviously in large institutions that's not necessarily the case because you've got you, you know people do different things so research faculty are different from people who teach. People who teach are also not necessarily industry people. Like these are wildly different subsets of people exactly. who work in the industry. And it's bare. And however, from the student's point of view, is that they assume as the teacher, you'll be able to go and tell them relevant information of how to, for lack of a like imagination, but like how to run your business. But they, they can't, te- like, even if you have an entrepreneurship class, is that you can't actually tell someone how to run their business because every case is slightly different. Right. Or if you're teaching in business school, is that you know, business students get these very neatly written cases. But in life, things aren't 20 pages where it's printed out for you to go and say, okay, find the three to five issues and then analyze it and then have a recommendation. Like that's, that is actually not how the real life works. Mm -hmm. And so I find it really interesting, you know, when you talk to industry people or when we talk to industry people, there's always this significant gap because students are like, but that's it, right? Like, I'm just supposed to go and talk to my teachers. And the teacher like, mm. <laughs> and like that very odd gap, like the materials that somehow I've been given or I'm, I, I guess I have to use. A lot of the frameworks are from 1995. Ew. <laughs> and so again, <laughs> like, what happens? changed in the last oh I don't know since 1995 yeah. we're only in 2020 it's like 30 years ago now <laughs> but it's like it's it's interesting to go and think that even in our history obviously things are currently happening you know we read about it on the on art news and etc where else wherever else that you read about contemporary art issues and we know that it happens but yet it's not in the curriculum so like how are you ever supposed to go and fill this gap for the student other than the fact that they can just hit the ground running but that's also a very specific grouping of people who can do that you know like throw them in the deep end learn to swim (laughs) or then you get a lot of this space which is what i get every time every day is eyes (laughs) wide open i'm like what am i saying is it is it me is it the slide like what's happening like i don't I i can't tell guys i can't tell um that's true. Yeah, I totally agree with all of that. And, you know, another thing that I was just thinking about, I mean, you know, going to a teacher, expecting them to kind of give you professional advice, like you said, you know, they don't have the experience that you're seeking to, uh, 
most likely an art history professor at a school like Bard never really worked for a gallery. So they can't really give you that kind of advice. And also looking at just academia and sort of how it's structured, you know, you're looking backward. It's about things that happened in the past, you know, owning a business, I think you want to be thinking forward and being in the present. I mean, the world is always changing. So you need to like be able to adapt to different situations. And I think you can only do that right if you have enough experience under your belt working in the industry that you could then apply to your own practice, your own business. Absolutely. I have a question. How, so you started just last year, right? Or 2021? Was that last we, year? What is time? So, <laughs> we opened, uh, we launched our space in, we had our first show with Marcus Lacey Singleton on March, 2022. Uh, we started um, with a space that was 700 square feet and now we have about 1800 square feet uh, a block away from where we started. Yeah. Okay. All right. So we are barely Here. one year old. <laughs> um, how did you like, how did you acquire your artists or like when you started like thinking about the program that you were going to have, like, what was your basis of like, this is, it's the people I like personally. It's the people I like professionally. It's the people I know I have clients for. Like, what was your first thought when you were like, is I need like these first five people. You know, it was kind of a not very scientific process, to be very honest with you. I had three months to put together the entire program from when we found this space to when we had the first show, pretty much. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, look, I always wanted to be a gallerist. It was always in the back of my mind. And, you know, I find that the people I get along with the best happen to be artists you know we kind of have the same vocabulary look at things sort of like from the same perspective and so i did have a whole sort of like network of friends of mine that i knew who happened to be incredible artists you know so when i was sort of presented with this opportunity the first thing that i thought was you know i have all these incredible artists who are in new york fairly young and, you know, they can't really get, you know, sort of the exposure that they need because, you know, I think New York is so oversaturated, not only with like exhibition, but like, you know, how many artists live in New York kind of like waiting to get the first shot. Um, so I thought maybe it would be interesting to get on a first shot in Miami. So I really honestly reached out to my friends. I mean, Marcus is someone that I deeply believe in. It was, you know, I told him if I'm going to be doing this, I think it should be the first uh, exhibition and he was on board um, and it was just like that. You know, I kept calling one friend after another. Um, and then in the process, I started kind of reaching out to artists that for so long I've been following uh, or had an interest in. Um, that's really how it happened. It was very natural and organic. You know, it wasn't very premeditated or anything like that. I, love that. I think that's really good to know too because something that we talk about a lot and something that I'm always like trying to tell artists also is that like these you know you don't know where things are going always and it always feels like things are you know like maybe there's like these kind of like big machinations but really like a lot of times it's just like you're working with your friends and you're just trying to do cool stuff right 
that's it. Yeah. Um, and I like yeah, that's how it started. Like eventually started growing into something yeah. a lot more kind of robust and professional. I mean, right. I did not think that we would be doing any Thursdays soon. You know, I thought it would take maybe two years of like having a project space where I'm working with friends and then eventually we would, could grow into like a more established gallery. But, you know, we just kept doing shows and had very strong responses for all the shows that we did. And, you know, where we got invited to start participating in fairs and then, you know, one thing led to another and here we are, you know, I'm not just showing my friends now, it's becoming yeah. a little bit more of, you know, but different. But that seed though is always yeah. gonna be smaller. Um, and then Absolutely. When, when you're looking at, like, how did you start? Because obviously you've got like, you've got a whole network of people you're in New York, you've been a gallerist and you can't obviously take like another gallery's like client list, obviously that's like, and big no, no, but like, you've got your own relationships. Like, how did you start like building a community in Miami? Uh, so like I said, I used to always come to Miami and yes, I did work for a gallery, but before even leading up to that um, experience of working with, I have to be honest, you know, I applied to so many galleries since I was oh, in yeah. college never okay. heard back the only opportunity Hundreds. i got to actually worked at was mitchell and nash uh, it only but, takes you know, one guys have... it only takes one do exactly. not get thank you for being so nose. honest thank you <laughs> thank you for being so honest well i mean Same. i think a lot of young people also should like hear that you know because i yeah. think it can be discouraging yeah. when you send out like you know i don't know yeah, five absolutely. ten applications and you think it's over no it's not over keep sending yeah. applications until yeah. you know you find the right match kind of um but, you know, I did meet a lot of people in college, you know, um, who were kind of very successful established dealers, established artists. And through them, I actually started meeting other artists, other collectors. You know, when I was out in L.A., you know, through friends of friends, I met a lot of people who were collecting. Um, and actually, I did have a job experience working for Bryce Martin uh, in Tivoli, upset New York, because that's when he was kind of spending most of his time uh, back then. Um, and you know, my job, I, you know, I was like a dishwasher when I started, and then I became his personal assistant. But um, through that, I didn't meet a lot of, you know, his friends and yeah. a lot of, you know, people in his circle who happened to be very prominent collectors. I mean, I got to meet Sean Ness and Nash. And, you know, when I was kind of asked to kind of make my first sale or whatever, the first person I called was this Italian collector that I met when I was working for Bryce. And, you know, the first call was the first sell because I knew this guy for two years already, you know? Right. Um, so it was through those experiences. And actually, before I came here to do the pop-up in the design district, I have a very close friend who actually did bring up the idea of considering Miami to start my own gallery. Uh, this was, I think, 2018 that he mentioned this, 2019. Uh, and he's been living here for a long time and he... And he, his family are very, pretty big collectors. Um, and through him, I actually met other collectors. And it was just like, you know, it was a snowball effect yeah. after that, you know. I think there's this misconception that you, you can't get into the art world or that the only way that you can get in is because you're a legacy baby. But I think like your story is really helpful to go and say that, you know, you can actually work really hard. And just because you get rejected repeatedly does not mean that you don't get in or that you can't make your own opportunities or that people, Absolutely. right? And that people 
will recognize how hard you work and be like, hey, have you considered doing this other thing? I'm here to support you. Right. And so it's not always what it looks like on from the outside, you know, like you worked really hard to get into a really good school and then you met loads of people, but then you still continue to work hard. It wasn't like it's a, oh, I got in. It's like, whatever. I'm just going to meet. People. Oh, I mean, none of the jobs I applied for, are, I never even heard back for most yeah. of the application that I sent out. And if I had to count, I maybe sent out over 300 applications in my entire life. But yeah. the jobs that I ended up getting were just through word of mouth. Well, you know, I'm at a dinner with a friend and they're like, yeah. oh, I was having a child with a discord at the Met and we told them about you and, you know, they want to consider you for a job. I mean, that's kind of how I got most of the job experiences that I did get. And I think there's some beauty in it because I think through that, you kind of find who you truly are, you know, and then you can kind of like sort of create your own path uh, instead of kind of like getting a job and sort of working with somebody else and just sort of a copying something that already kind of exists. I mean, that's, if I had gotten, I don't know, some of the jobs that I did apply for when I was in college, right after college, chances are I wouldn't be in Miami right now, you know? So that's kind of how I'm looking at it. I think that's really... So it was a blessing, really. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's really powerful. And I think that's like really important too, because it's like, I think I was having a discussion with some artists the other day about how like they're not in the in the position to network. And I think that networking, again, just busting these misconceptions, like, because I have a similar career trajectory in terms of, you know, the hundreds of, e- of applications sent. And then most of my jobs that like look the fanciest on paper were word of mouth. And... People are like, well, I don't have access to those people. And I was like, I didn't have access to these people. I was an assistant at one place and I was talking to an assistant mm-hmm. at another place and they found right. out that somebody was hiring from another assistant at another place where this art mover was at this artist's studio and a client came in, say, you know, like it's all, I think that there's like this big, like, yes, like you've got the friend who, you know, whose family's big collectors, but there's so many other p- moving parts. Like, yes, you know, those are always really good people to know too, but just the the assistant to somebody else is always also really important. And they're the people who also know and are asking around, Hey, I need somebody to help this. Or I heard this collector said they need somebody or this curator at the Met needs something. And it's not, it's not always, you know, the person who has the purse strings, I guess, I don't know, or the access. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I I became Bryce Martin, Bryce Martin's assistant because I knew his chef. Right. And he chef, you know, heard I came back from L.A., didn't really have a job, was kind of like thinking what was the next step. And he kind of said, hey, I'm looking for a dishwasher. And yeah. I said, sure. And I was kind of like, at first, my instinct would have been to, like, be offended by that. And you know what? I showed up with a suit, but I rolled my sleeve and started washing dishes. A month later, Bryce Martin walked in and kind of told me he wants a personal assistant and heard things about me and wants me to be. So I think, like you said, you know, it's not always. I think there is this kind of like idea that you have to like be talking to the top people to get the best right. opportunities but like you were saying i think you could be talking to anybody and get you can be talking to anyone yeah. um and it can be yeah like when i became doug aiken's studio manager i was at richard meyer and somebody an assistant from a gallery assistant from regan projects to talk to a gallery or talk to a, a curator as assistant at the hammer who i just happened to know because we were down the street like it was just Nobody, you know, like nobody that I is like 
Doug's biggest collector wasn't calling me up being like, I heard, you know, it was, it's like the grapevine is really, it's, it's not always what you think it's going to be. And I think that's always right. really important to like also, cause it does, it's all of these little parts that like add up and it is like your work. And then again, like the luck is like the work meets the opportunity where like, you've got this experience and then you have this opportunity to be like interacting right. with Bryce Martin and then boom, there's, there's the job. You also have to be, willing. you know, I think that's a really big thing is that you have to be willing to go and take not the chance of the opportunity, but you need right. to take a chance on yourself to go and think that it can happen because I'm sure you yeah. never thought that, Oh, I'm going to be a dishwasher that I was going to end up whatever you were like, okay, so this is the opportunity that I have right now. You could turn it down. Um, but then you didn't. And I don't think that people actually think that way, which, which is like, okay, you have to also say yes for yourself. Absolutely. And that's a very different mentality than saying, I'm going to network. I'm going to talk to this assistant. And I'm going to talk to this because that's very linear thinking that people are like, oh, well, if I just go and talk to this assistant, this assistant, this assistant, and like, maybe I'll hear back and blah, blah, blah. But like, most of the time from my experience in, in talking to people and networking, it's deeply, deeply not linear. Yeah. It, mm -hmm. Like the opportunities might happen years later. Um, it might not be exactly what you thought it was going to be. It's like some other form of it. And then you you just have to like say yes and take the leap of faith. Like that's all that you can do, right? Because like if you don't do it, then it, you wouldn't end up there. That's so true. And another thing that I was going to add to that is the fact that, you know, when people see that you're willing to kind of, so to speak, get your hands dirty, I think you know, it kind of shows that you have this ambition or this willingness to really like work hard for what you want. And another thing, I guess, is like, you know, constantly communicating what you really want to do in life. You know, I, yes. yes, I was washing dishes, but I couldn't stop talking about how I want to run a gallery one day. Everybody was laughing at me, but people were hearing and it ended up getting into the right ears. And, you know, that really was very instrumental, you know? Yes, I was his personal assistant, but he kind of knew about my interest and started making introduction you know and i met other powerful dealers that way i met other collectors that way even though i didn't start with the kind of opportunity i was seeking for right because it because it also like that goes into so many teams i can't tell you how many times like an artist will tell me or another gallerist or a dealer or somebody no or even like myself sometimes i forget because the lord knows i don't take my own advice all the time is that you know some of like oh I, I need to find some more clients or oh i really want to show or oh i'm really like available for this and i'm like who knows does anybody mm -hmm. know and so many times the answer is like oh well you know now and i'm like well then <laughs> <laughs> these things don't come out of nowhere you've got to you've got to talk to people and you've got to let right. people know because then it's so funny how many times somebody's said like hey i'm available like i'm looking to photograph like more gallery spaces or i'm looking for work in this situation and they'd be like oh i don't know anything now but i'll keep that in mind and then within like a week or two someone else will be like hey do you know anybody who's available for this and i'm like funny that you <laughs> exactly. ask because here you go um and it's like almost it's it's crazy how quickly these things happen because everybody's always asking right. they're always talking and i love that too always looking for people i think that's what it is i think that there's a much larger 
economy or market where people are just looking for people to hire. And it's always reported to say, oh, no one's hiring. It's really good. But it's like in actual reality, when you're in the field and you're working and you know, it's like people are consistently looking for someone else to maybe because someone's shit and they need to be replaced. Maybe it's because like mm-hmm. you actually are making enough money that you can have a new position. You know what yeah. I mean? It could be any of those things. And there's so many right. creative things that are like project based where it's like, here's an opening or here's this or someone's going to be gone and you need someone to gallery sit or you need someone to assist on like one project or one installation and then one installation turns into three installations turns into a permanent job or you know something else um but I love that it is it's so much of this is like the sum of all the parts and like you couldn't have known like all of these ingredients were going to add up to Jupiter contemporary and yet here we are yeah master chef Very exciting. Miami. I really like that. I really like that metaphor, guys. But it is, because it's like you were collecting all these ingredients all along the way and you didn't even know. And you're like, here's some. Oh, and you know, I mean, you you get surprised. Oh, yeah, yeah. And you guess, I mean, sometimes, like we were saying earlier, you can get an opportunity that doesn't seem aligned with what you want. But once you get to what you want, that opportunity can be so helpful in many different ways. I mean, there's so many things that I learned from working in the kitchen, for instance, that I can use to whatever I'm doing today. Or, you know, I was assisting the studio doing some art handling stuff. I mean, when it comes to, you know, switching or swapping exhibitions or whatever, then, you know, sometimes you can be instrumental using or applying the knowledge that you gather from that experience to the task that is in front of you at the moment. And I think more than that, you just develop a personality, which I think is something you can never do if you get whatever you want, whenever you want, you know, you kind of learn how to uh, be resilient, persevere despite any challenges. And I think any business owner needs to have that kind of character, you know? Yeah. Oh, and you also, you gotta be somebody other people can like relate to and have conversations with and hang out with. Absolutely. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Not everybody is a gallery owner in this role, so you need to be able to like talk. And and you can also recognize as a business owner now, because you've been in so many aspects of so many other businesses, when something like your, your instincts, I bet, are a little bit sharper than some people because you're like, oh, this smells funny. This isn't, this isn't somebody I want to professionally engage with. You know, I've been in situations similar to this. And I don't want to go down that road road, because you've got a little bit more experience on so many different levels than somebody, than some other people might not. Mm -hmm. Wouldn't agree more. What have you been reading, watching, or listening to this week? Um, Right now, actually... um... So Dan, my artist Dan Maldivan was here for the weekend for his opening and he kind of told me about this uh, funny TV show on Netflix called The Watcher. And I started, I have to say, it's pretty fascinating. I mean, before that, I was kind of watching um, um, like we all wear White Lotus, which I thought was uh, a <laughs> very hilarious uh, TV show. Um, in terms of reading, you know, on my birthday, I was offered this really beautiful book uh, called A Visible Man, and it's the, kind of the story of uh, Edward Anninful. I guess that's how it's spelled last name. Oh, week. yes, yes, uh, yes. Uh, and that's a really incredible book, I have to say, because, um, you know, it's like kind of what we were just talking about. I mean, you kind of see that this guy's trajectory was not so simple. I mean, you kind of see the man 
with the success right now and you think, oh, this guy always had it, you know, but you start reading this book and you kind of understand it wasn't easy to get where he was. And I think as an African Israeli immigrant, it's nice to have kind of like that kind of role model to look up to, you know, because we kind of look around you, nobody comes from where you come from. And it's like nice to see another African person who did incredibly well uh, in the creative industry. So there is a lot to learn. You know, something that I've always done, like always been obsessed with is like reading biographies of other successful people. Um, that's mostly what I'm reading, what I read. Um, and uh, what was the third question? What I'm listening to all oh, right now, what I'm listening to. Um, I, I'm kind of in a strange phase right now where I'm listening to a lot of like uh, um, music sets, specifically by uh, Nicholas Jar, Black Coffee and Temba. I was kind of put on to this by my friend, actually, Robert, Robert Nava, like, you know, kind of started like sending me this stuff. And um, I think it kind of helps me focus when I'm working because there's no lyrics or anything. And I like to work out in the mornings. Um, you know, it's a good way to like get the day started and get yourself in a good rhythm. Uh, so that's what I've been up to. Very exciting. Hey, this was even better. Than I knew this was gonna be. Thank you so <laughs> Thank much you. for joining us. Um, Thank you guys our... for having me. This was such an amazing experience. If our listeners want to find you on the interwebs, where can they find you? Uh, our website is Jupiter Contemporary. We are also on Instagram, Jupiter Contemporary. If you want to email us, email us at info at Jupiter Contemporary. Amazing. I'm gonna put com. all of that info in the blurby as usual, guys. And uh, if you're listening on Apple, uh, like and subscribe. Helps the, uh, let's juice that algorithm. You know what I'm saying? And um, I'm Alexis Hyde. I'm Hyde or Die Everywhere. I'm Erica Wall. You can find me at To Practice Practice. Uh, until next time, bye. Bye. Bye-bye.